Welcome to Westside Unscripted, the podcast where pastors loosen their ties, throw away their notes, and answer questions about all things theology and culture. I am Josh Bartels, the assistant to the pastors here at Westside, and I am this time actually joined by our preaching pastor, Peter Montoro. He is back from a leave of absence due to illness, and so it's good to have him live and in person here. So It's good to be seen. Yeah, we're not seeing me, but Josh is seeing me. Yep, I I can verify he is here. So it's good. It's good to have him back. Have uh, him actually on the podcast instead of just snippets from things he said in the past. Uh, But he usually shares snippets from things he's reading right now. So what what have you brought for us today? Well, I did not get to do nearly as much reading as I would have hoped to do being sick because I was like sick enough that I was not reading, which is really remarkable for me. Yeah, it's pretty sick for me. Um, but uh, one book I did read over the past few weeks is It Is Good to Be a Man, A Handbook for Godly Masculinity by Michael Foster and Dominic Benon Tenem. And uh, it definitely is a very different style from the way that I would usually talk, but uh, precisely for that reason, I think it was really beneficial and I found it really helpful. And I wanted to share a few quotes from you. We'll have it in the bookstore here. Have we ordered it yet? It should be coming soon. Should be coming soon. So we'll get we'll have some copies in the bookstore. Um, but a few quotes. Uh, the gender war is not between the genders. It is on the gender. Gender itself is under siege. The enemy of our day is not male versus female, misogyny, or female versus male, misandry. The enemy of our day is androgyny, humanity, spurred on by the devil versus sexual distinctions. And so there's an idea that if we can mush the genders into a homogenous humanity, then there'll be no more divisions, no more tensions, no more conflict. And so girls are taught to be more masculine because masculine achievements are the ones that matter. And boys are taught to be more feminine because the masculine nature is uh, toxic and disgusting. Uh, And so children grow up believing that it is not good to be male or female, and they therefore have no clue how to live as God designed them. And that's certainly something that I think is really important, that this is this idea, this is something actually I'll be, uh, Lord willing, doing a series on sometime in the summer about the idea that we're created as embodied creatures and the bodies we are created in actually matter. That when we're resurrected, we'll be resurrected as men or as women and we contribute uh, to society, to the church, um, relate to God distinctively as men and as women. And that, that goes all the way down and affects every area of life. Uh, and so... Often the church has been complicit in this sort of androgynous spirituality um, that is at the root of so many of the problems in our culture. And yeah. so understanding what it means to be embodied as a man or as a woman um, is really, really, really basic. Yeah. In fact, I'll be talking about that on Sunday morning, Lord willing. Um, so I thought that was really helpful. Yeah, and there's something about that that uh, we tend to think that we tend to view ourselves as a human person as like a body that a soul inhabits or a a soul that has a wears a body or like that there's a disconnect but the human person is all of those things together at the same time that your soul is male or female you're like all of you is male. yes yeah and you will always be if you're a man you will always be a man if you're a woman you will always be a woman um and and it you know like i said it yeah and i think that's really important to understand um and understanding that like humanity flourishes as women make contributions as women and their their womanly contributions to the family to community are valued and respected um and since society 
general values women for how good they do at being men, then if we're going to say, well, we don't want women doing what men do, then we need to find ways to honor women and to see that they're properly rewarded for excelling as women right. um, in a way our society doesn't. So I thought that was really, yeah. that was a really good point. That's good. And the second quote, I have three quotes, actually. Uh, okay. The second quote is from, uh, actually from Bonhoeffer, from his book, Life Together. And uh, he, it's, so the, all three quotes come from this book, but this is a quote. They quote Bonhoeffer. Those who love their dream of a Christian community more than the Christian community itself become destroyers of that Christian community, even though their personal intentions may be ever so honest, earnest, and sacrificial. And I've seen that so many times that those who have an idea of what they want, that they value their idea more than the actual flesh and blood community they're a part of. And it's not just community, it's marriage or whatever, that I've seen so many families where they have an idea of the ideal Christian family and they love their idea so much that they destroy the actual family they're a part yeah, of because right. it doesn't match their idea. Um, yeah. So I thought that was really insightful. And the third quote, I have lots of quotes from this. Nice. You know what? I'll skip the third quote. Move okay. On to the question. Hey, so well, those, those two things really stuck yeah. out to me as being really helpful. So I'll, good. Uh, if you are a man, I would encourage you to read the book. Yeah. And it'll show up in the bookstore here in the next uh, few weeks, probably. So. Uh, today's question, though, that we're going to get into has to do with one of the Ten Commandments, specifically the, uh, in this case, the Fourth Commandment, which is, I'm going to read it here, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And there's a couple of uh, points that the this uh, person who sent in the question has to bring up. One of them is Genesis 8.10, that there's uh, Noah stays another seven days in the ark, and then he sends forth a dove. And so just as an illustration of the fact that the seven day pattern shows up mm -hmm. multiple times, obviously you've got the commandment hearkening back to the original uh, creational pattern of God working for the six days and then resting on the eighth. And so the question is, what should we do now as the church in regards to observing the Sabbath? How does that work? What does that look like for us? Can we go shopping? Can we watch football? Uh, he says many churches have excluded this commandment as being relevant at all. Like it's the one of the 10 commandments that really doesn't have any relevance today. All the others do. Uh, what should we think about the fourth commandment? How should we bring that into our day? Yeah. Well, this is certainly something that good Christians differ. And so I want to just preface what I'm about to say. This is how I read it. This is how I understand it. Um, I respect and honor those who have a different viewpoint than I do. So this isn't a, a uh, church defining issue. So unless someone wants to say like you agree with me or you know you're out like mm. that would be a, that would be a concern. But I don't see this as like a a sort of boundary marker issue. But I do think it's something that's important. Um, and so basically, where I would go um, is I would say that the law code as a whole, so really all of Exodus, really the whole Pentateuch, um, as a revelation of the character of God, all of it applies to us. Even the, you shall not boil a kid in its mother's milk. Even the, um, you know, don't muzzle the ox that treads out the corn. All of the, well, treads out the grain. All of these things, they all apply to us as revelation of the character of God. Um, and and as such, the truth is still, still applies. The whole kid and caboodle, the whole thing. Mm -hmm. um, and at the same token, as a covenant, we are not under the old covenant, any part of it. So it's, you know, even thou shalt not kill is, we're not under that as a covenant, we are under the new covenant. Um, now, of course, God's character doesn't change. And so some things, you know, people talk about the moral law or that sort of thing, it, but it's more that um, 
some things are so basic to being human, being created in God's image, that they're relatively unchanged. So the meaning of adultery doesn't change between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. You know, the meaning of, you know, thou shalt not murder doesn't change between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. It's deepened. You know, Jesus talks about hate and he talks about lust in a way that isn't explicitly addressed. But even if you look at, we'll be getting into this in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is more saying, giving a deeper giving a deeper insight into what the, the Old Covenant already pointed forward to, right? So he's, he's drawing out the implications of it in a way that may not have been perfectly clear, but he's not saying, he's not, you know, reversing what was there he's, he's more saying this is how we should you know this is how you how this is how it should have been interpreted all along um in ways that may not have been completely explicit but if they had been you know being led by the spirit this is how they should have been reading it all along um and so i would see though that we are not under it as a um a covenant as a law code so it's not intended as so none of it is intended as law for us all of it is revelation to us um and where that intersects <laughs> With the Sabbath um, is, I think the Sabbath is something that is given specifically. So the seventh day Sabbath is something that's given specifically to Israel, and there's there's I think pretty solid evidence of that. Um, in I was something I was talking about in the series on Exodus just a few weeks ago. Um, well, it's been a few weeks since I've been in Exodus, but it was I think the the, the second to last week when I you know back before mm-hmm. the great illness, um, <laughs> but when the manna is given, it's pretty clear that the Sabbath is a new concept to Israel at that point. And then later on, um, throughout the prophets, it talks about in the wilderness, Israel was given the Sabbaths. Um, and so it it seems both contextually and then later, when it refers back to this season, it seems like the Sabbath is a new concept. Now a new, con- <laughs> but it's something that is in keeping. So there's a seven day pattern that is present already in creation. There's a seven day pattern as uh, the questioner pointed out, um, with Noah's flood. Um, so you have this sort of seven-day pattern that shows up, but there's no explicit teaching about a Sabbath. Um, and so there's a creational fittingness. And I, I believe it's in, um, yeah, it's in Exodus. So Deuteronomy gives a different motivation. Exodus gives this creational motivation, and it's tied to the creational pattern, but sort of as a commandment, as a legal obligation that is part of the Old Covenant, which we're no longer under as the New Covenant people of God. And so how does that show up um, in the church today? I, I think in Hebrews talks about um, how there's a rest for the people of God, and it takes this category of rest and really applies it to the rest we're going to enter into into the new creation, um, but also gives a hint that it's resting from our work and trusting in the work of Christ. Um, and so I'd see the Sabbath fulfilled really in three different ways in the life of the church right now. Um, one, I would see there's a basic creational principle that we can't work all the time. There has to be a day of rest. Um, there has to be seasons of rest in our life. There has to be a rhythm of work and rest where we realize we're not God. We need to take a break. Um, so I'd, so that, I don't see it has to be Saturday. I take a day off on Friday because Sunday is really not a day off for me. Um, and so having that regular rhythm of work and rest, I think that principle still applies because that's something about the character of creation. Um, that's just how we were made as human beings. So not as a specific law covenant, you have to you know not kindle a fire on the Sabbath, but that idea of a rhythm of work and rest at the creational level. Um, and then the idea that we trust in what God has done for us. We're not working to earn our salvation. So you have that 
spiritual level. And I think that's part of part of the the application as well that we are resting from our work and we're trusting in the work that Jesus did for us. Um, and then also we are looking forward to this eschatological end times rest that is coming. Um, that you know, right now we're often weary, but a time of rest is coming um, where we're going to have a reward for our labors and we're going to be able to have that that final rest with God. So those would be sort of the three the three ways that I would see it as as happening. And I, I see that intersecting with Sunday of that principle of really setting a day to to honor the Lord um, and giving priority. And one of the things I like about having a Sunday evening service is the, the way a book ends the day. Because without Sunday evening, it can be let's, you know, let's go Sunday morning and then let's go spend the rest of the day doing whatever. Let's get an extra work day in or let's go do some big fun activity or whatever it is. But really by having a Sunday morning service, a Sunday evening service, then that frames whatever you do on Sunday afternoon. So it's not like you can't watch the game or you can't watch a movie or, you know, you, you couldn't do something else. But it really bookends, it frames the day um, and, and really keeps the focus on God. Because I'd say that, that I guess that would be a fourth thing of really setting aside a day to remember the creator. And that ties in with, so it, it may be that for some, you know, like the the Levites in the tabernacle, the Sabbath was a day of work for them. They had extra sacrifices to do. Um, and, and yet both the people and the, you know, the leadership, all of them had a day that they devoted to really giving attention to the things of the Lord. Um, and then, you know, presumably they had another day that they were able to rest from their labors because that, that rest would still be needed by them. Um, and so I wouldn't call myself a Sabbatarian. I, I think to me that really, it's like, and, and this this gets into, if you're going to, so it's when you get into the detailed argumentation, it is really hard for me to see how you can be a Sabbatarian where you believe the Sabbath is an obligation for Christians and not practice infant baptism. I feel like the arguments for the two are so intertwined that if you accept one, you end up accepting the other um, because they really come down to issues of continuity between the old covenant and the new covenant. And so logically, if you sort of have a a position that everything in the old covenant, unless it's explicitly annulled, explicitly canceled, then you have to do it, then finding some you know, parallel to infant circumcision and, and, and that sort of thing, it seems like those two go together. And historically, that's been the case as well. There have been some Baptists who are Sabbatarians, but it seems more consistent to, like the view that I have seems more consistent with a more Baptist hermeneutic of how the old and new covenant relate together. So I've gone on for a long, t- long time, but. Yeah. Uh, so then do you think as far as what kind of thinking about practically on Sunday, what kind of activities we should be engaged in then? Do you think that we should uh apply certain restrictions to what we're doing on Sunday in a way that uh you know what what would be appropriate would there be things that wouldn't be appropriate on Sunday given that we are still attending Sunday morning Sunday night services yeah i I'd, I'd hesitate to say there'd be things that would absolutely in no circumstances be appropriate mm-hmm. but this was something for me like that I wrestled with several years ago that I was using Sunday as like I'm going to get you know, I'm going to get projects done around the house Sunday afternoon between the services. This was before I was here. This was when I was back in Oklahoma. And I realized like, you know, I need to take Sunday afternoon and either devote it to hospitality or something that is either restful or worshipful or service oriented, as opposed to me just getting one more day to get things done. 
you know, one more like slot where I'm basically that attitude of being frantic of I've got to, you know, spend every, you know, so here's how it looks in my life that, of course, we just had a baby and we've been out sick, so we haven't done much hosting the past couple months. Uh, but normally we'll host on Sunday afternoon. And if we don't host, then I will, you know, take some time to read some, you know, spend some time reading uh, things that aren't like work related, that aren't like, you know, that aren't like I'm, you know, that aren't productivity obsessed, <laughs> you know, just like rest, more restful. So either, you know, either, you know, spend the time in service or I'll spend the time in, in, in doing something that'll be restful for me. Um, and I think that that's what I've seen in my own life. And so I'll, own, and then I'll have to go back to the office if I'm teaching Sunday night and get ready for that. But I won't just like try to check off my to-do list. Yeah. And that's, you know, I wouldn't condemn someone who did, but it just seems like there's still that fittingness and that pattern of God's character that seems to where it's not a law, but just being led by the spirit in what we're doing that we should treat it in some way different than just like one more day to one more slot to get more of the same. Yeah. What, how do you then, because there, there's been some churches I've been a part of that Sunday is like the key productivity day for church life. And so then you're going, you wake up at, you know, seven o'clock in the morning, you're at a prayer meeting and then, and you're just going, 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 maybe you squeeze in a nap and then you get there early for something before this in the evening service. And then, you know, the whole day is really not ever characterized by restfulness. Even if you are, if you're involved at all, it ends up being super busy. So how, how do you uh, distinguish between service that is useful or, or not just useful, but is necessary on Sunday and service that becomes just another one of the productivity obsessed activities in your day. Yeah, that's a good, cause that, that really is, and that's legitimate. And I know you and I have talked about this mm -hmm. lots and lots of times. Um, cause there is a tension between wanting to have the day devoted to the service of the Lord, but wanting the service of the Lord to have a restful rhythm to it, where it's not just the day that you have 101 things to do, which is really a challenge, especially if you're employed by the church, that it, mm -hmm. you know, like for me, so it's not, you know, Sunday afternoon is that one slot of time that I can, you yeah. know, have some degree of control over. But, you know, I get up, I'm usually mm -hmm. up late Saturday night working, and I get up and in time to get to the pastor's meeting on Sunday morning before the service, and you have the service, and then you've got to be back in the office before Sunday night to make sure all the notes and everything are in order. Um, so that there is that, you know, so for me personally, there is that Levites working in the, you know, in the, mm -hmm. in the temple where Jesus says, you know, they, they break the Sabbath, but it's required for the worship of God. And therefore this is appropriate. Mm -hmm. um, Would that then become, do you think, uh, if we're thinking about the parallel between the priests who break the Sabbath in order to keep the Sabbath in that sense, then is there a parallel between that and, uh, us all being a community of priests that then yeah, there is some there, level where we all uh break the sabbath not like as a body as opposed to as individuals yeah, no, i think like, i think it's know, an appropriate uh, analogy i think what i'd want to and i you know i've been a part of you know i've been a part of the the sort of uh ministry well the same we were part of, i think we're, i think we're both thinking of the same mm -hmm. church that we both served in ministry there together um and i think one of the things that i try to avoid doing this characterizes everything really everything at Westside is I want there to be things to do to serve, but I want everything that we do to have a weight to it and not just keep people busy for the sake of keeping people busy. 
And so, you you know, some people may feel like, oh, wow, you do a, you have a Sunday morning and a Sunday night. That's like crazy, you know, but, you know, we have one Sunday morning service. We have a Sunday evening service. We have a good, you know, we start at 10 o'clock. So there's a lot of little things like, you know, we start the service at 10 o'clock so that you don't have to be up at the crack of dawn. You know, we don't have a prayer meeting at seven o'clock in the morning on Sunday, you, you know, where you have to mm-hmm. come here at seven and then come back and then go out on, and, you know, go out on a, you know, and do this and do this ministry and then come back and have Sunday school and then get from Sunday school to church and then get from church to, you know, a ministry thing after, you know, then, you know, take everyone back home on the bus. And then you've got, uh, you know, some ministry thing that meets in the afternoon and then Sunday evening and then something after church and Sunday night. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, that, that was what was characteristic of the church we were part of. And so really, you know, so the tension that I feel is everyone lives kind of far apart. And so it is easier and more restful for people to not have to come back and forth extra times. And so sometimes trying to schedule stuff when people are already here is easier, but then the more stuff you schedule, then the less restful that day is. And so trying to trying to balance those things yeah. has been there's no perfect there's no perfect solution because you want to you want people to not feel burnt out by being back and forth, but you also don't want Sunday to be crazy busy. And yeah. so do you think there is an importance for people to put, to coordinate their rest with Sunday. Do you think the day Sunday has significance that should be, the rest should coordinate with? Because you're talking about how, for you personally, obviously as a pastor, your responsibilities demand that you're doing a lot of work on Sunday. You're preaching, you're teaching, you're counseling, you're impromptu counseling, right? Like there's things that happen on Sunday that uh, demand your work but that you're trying to make Sunday a restful day, but that you then have a Friday that is a day of rest. Uh, Would it be appropriate then for church members to say, you know what, I'm going to give my Sunday to service in a way that, okay, Saturday is going to be our rest day. And that's going to be the day we're not going to do anything, but then Sunday we work hard. Or is there some, should we be trying to leverage rest on Sunday? Do you think? Yeah, I mean, so one of the challenges is, you know, there's really clear teaching in the New Testament that the church is meeting for worship on Sunday. You know, but in first century, Sunday was a work day. Like, and a good portion of the early church was slaves. This, this has been one of my, one of my tensions with sort of Sabbatarianism is, is it's actually, some people believe it's actually sinful to work on Sunday. But given the realities of first century Greco-Roman society and even Jewish society, because Sunday was a work day for them as well, um, and given that a good portion of the early church was slaves, to say that they were being sinful, you know, when, and you see this, even their meeting, in some cases, they're meeting very early at, you know, we know from historical records that they would either meet very early in the morning, you know, before work, or they'd meet very late at night after work or both. Um, and so it was a work day. And so I think, you know, it is a good thing, one of the Christian influences of society that when, as much as those things can be paralleled, that we you know, don't do other things on Sunday, that it's a day off, that that's a privilege, but it's one that isn't shared by many Christians around the world today um, and by many early Christians as well. And so I, so that's kind of why I'm hesitant to make sure. that like an absolute rule. So it rule. seems like more that the, the our current preference for Sunday being the day of rest is really just the fruits of a Christian society, yes. not so much the fruits of a of the early church, seeing this as being a demand that we must not work on Sundays. Yeah. And really, I mean, so it kind of goes back to the Puritans were extremely strong on Sabbatarianism. So it's actually kind of, there's a whole historical controversy about how the Puritans 
related to the continental reformers on this. And so like what Calvin's view would have been versus the English Puritans. But for whatever reason, the English speaking Puritans um, got really, really passionate about this idea of the Sabbath being Sunday. Um, and I'm not completely clear as to exactly why. I don't. I know there's a lot of historical debate about the details, so maybe no one's completely clear. But there's a lot. There was a lot of historical attention to that, and because the Puritans were very influential in the founding of America, then that is you know why Sunday is a you know there up until recently, even in some places, there still are laws about what can be open on Sunday and not. Mm-hmm. And it's because of that it became like a very central part of in a way that is not really characteristic of the church as a whole in most of the world. Um, but places like this this particular group of Christians that happens to be really influential in the legal framework of America really got, I, I, I'd hesitate to hung up, but it was a really big deal to them. Um, and so that's some of the fruits, and I'm not saying, I'm thankful for those, mm-hmm. um, you know, because it means that a lot of people are able to have work off on Sunday. But that's changing yeah. um, really in our society. Mm-hmm. Uh and so we have to work around that. Yeah. And so with people working on, you know, I'd say if, you know, you know, if you have a job that requires you to work every Sunday, then it becomes hard to participate in worship. I would really say you should be looking for something different. But a lot of men in the church have jobs that require them to work some Sundays, and that's becoming much more mm-hmm. the norm. And so just working around that as best as we can. Yeah. So this has been a really interesting conversation. I think there are two different directions I would want to uh, see if we could point people to some resources. One of those is what would be something that someone could read that would give them that kind of covenantal over, uh, overview of the way the covenant relates to us today, because that was kind of, that's kind of foundational to how we think mm-hmm. about the Sabbatarian. So what would, is there a book you would point people to? Or? Yeah. Kingdom through covenants. There's the big one. And then there's the, by Peter Gentry and Stephen Wellam, there's a big, massive, thick book, and then there's a shorter version. And that's been really helpful to me in um, both on this specific issue and just more generally how the, the scriptures fit together. Yeah. Um, both did, of those are available in our bookstore. Yes, book, so we can, people yeah. could get them there. Um, and then I, I taught a lesson in the School of Ministry. I did a lecture on this specific topic, on how the covenants fit together. Um, and so if... And I think I did a lesson as well. Um, so the School of Ministry, you'd have to ask me for because those aren't uploaded, but I have. I could send it to anyone who, who's interested. Um, and then in the big, I did a course on the big story of the Bible that I dealt with this in particular as well. And that should already be up on the sermon audio. And if anyone yeah. has questions. So, yeah. so that would be something I've, so I've taught on this. And part of that was inspired by reading those, those two books. Yeah. So that'd be my recommendation for that. Great. Wonderful. The other direction I would ask is that something that was interesting to me as you talked is the worship practices of the early church. Is there anything in particular that would be kind of a layman's guide or something that would get us into just understanding what it looked like oh, to yeah. worship so in the early the, church? Uh, thinking about that, the uh, there's a chapter, there's a, um, oh, my brain's going blank right now. Um, there's a multi-volume this was a book I talked about when we did the church history series. Do you remember that? Uh, a thousand years of Christ's power. Yeah. 2000, or 2000 years of, of Christ's power. And it was written by, I will uh, pull it up while you talk about it. Um, anyways, in the first volume of this series, uh, which we can get, I think we can it's get a copy. Book. It's in the bookstore yep. and we can get a copy in the library. Yeah. Could we? Yeah. Yep, let's get it. Let's maybe we'll put the bookstore copy in the library. <laughs> okay. Um, the uh, anyway, anyways, in there he has a chapter 
that is an outline of early Christian worship by practices. Nick Needham. By Nick Needham. Um, Needham is a really interesting guy, and it's this series. It's really clearly written and very accessible to laymen. Like it's, it doesn't presume any previous knowledge. It really he wrote it for like students coming in Africa who are coming from a total non-Christian cultural background. So he explains things like even the difference between BC and AD and how the dates work, things that are like sort of background things that a lot of books assume you already know, he takes the time to explain. Um, and so I'd really commend that. And he has a, a chapter that he talks about early Christian worship practices really thoroughly, um, but it's clear, it's easy to understand. And uh, I found it helpful. I mean, he goes through the sources, gives like quotes from, you know, how do we know these things? But here's, here's where we can find it. So I'd really commend that. Great. Um, yeah, those are helpful. good. So look for that in the church library. And uh, that's a new thing. So if you want to start an account with the library, just go on to the bookstore and we'll get you hooked up there. And now you'll be able to check out this book and read that chapter to find out what's going on with early church worship. Well, this has been another episode of Westside Unscripted, and this time joined in the flesh by Pastor Peter Montoro. So we're glad to have him back. Thank you so much for listening today. If you have further questions for Pastor Peter or ideas of uh, other future topics, please reach out to me at my email, josh at bibledirectionforlife.com. Or of course, you can always catch me at church. Uh, thanks again for listening, and we look forward to being with you again next week to talk about all things theology and culture. Mm-hmm.